This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The following program may contain explicit language. It's Monday, November 23rd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Like a tennis referee or your spleen, the Michigan Board of Canvassers should be one of those anonymous entities that quietly and competently does their job, and our not noticing them is their reward for this job well done, or at least done. But in Trump's America, a designation we're blessedly retreating from, with momentum, I should add, the Michigan Board of Canvassers, it became a potential political flashpoint, or so hoped, the Trump de-election committee. The four members of the board, two Dems, two Republicans, quote, shall certify the results from the counties. Yes, there were problems with 350 out of the quarter of a million votes cast in Wayne County, but the remedy sought by the Trump administration, throwing out all the votes, is appalling, brazen, and disproportionate. Yet Laura Cox, head of the Michigan GOP, brought with her her own set of A, B, D adjectives. From the moment issues stated early today, the reaction from the Secretary of State, the Attorney General, and partisan Democrats has been antagonistic, belligerent, and disrespectful. And Ms. Cox advocated a delay of certification because a logical counter to disrespect is disenfranchisement. Donald Trump did not officially hire Eric Cartman to enact the don't disrespect my authority policy, but this is pretty close. Once there is certification from counties, which there is, the board shall certify the results. So Aaron Van Langveld, one of the two Republicans on the board, seemed to use his time to probe the idea of what shall meant. He asked Charlie Spees, speaking on behalf of the losing Republican Senate candidate, about shall. Well, I mean... I've had a pretty good chance to look at the law over the last few days, as you can imagine. And I mean, there's nothing in the law that gives me the authority, and then correct me if I'm wrong, there's nothing in the law giving me authority to request an audit as part of the certification process, correct? Nothing expressly gives you that authority, and nothing expressly says you can't do it. I would respectfully suggest that if you take the rubber stamp approach, that you are not allowed to have any discretion, that makes your job meaningless. Poor assessment. Going outside the boundaries of the law doesn't make your job meaningless. It denies the job holder powers that the job holder doesn't have. In the same way, a toll booth collector doesn't have the right to impound your car if you're not wearing a seatbelt, or the zookeeper doesn't have the right to free the animals at will. That doesn't mean their jobs are meaningless. That means their jobs are their jobs and not some other jobs or jobs with more power, dangerous amount of power. Spees, by the way, did recommend that someone like his actual suggestion, Joe Lieberman, come in and do an audit of election results. That, nor any of the other suggestions beside certification, were adhered to. Van Langeveld agreed with his two Democratic colleagues. The fourth Republican on the board, Norm Schinkel, abstained. 
I don't know if democracy is on the march or crazy town arguments merely lost the day, but Donald Trump's job just got harder. And by Donald Trump's job, I don't refer to the being president part. He's not at all interested in that. I mean the stealing the election, self-defined part of the job. And soon after Michigan certified, Donald Trump tweeted out that he's authorizing the GSA to work with Joe Biden on the transition. I guess Donald Trump realized that when only Norm Schinkel, not even halfway, agrees with you, you've lost. On the show today, I spiel about some of the appointees for a Biden cabinet or a near cabinet. All hell, Czar Kerry, the temperate. But first, John Wilson is a documentarian and filmmaker behind the most exciting show that I've watched in some time. It's called How To with John Wilson. It's on HBO. One topic, scaffolding. Another topic, how to cover your furniture. But as Wilson takes us deep into these mundane topics, he reveals truths and insights that go beyond, dare I say, the topic of, I don't know, how to pick up the check. John Wilson is up next. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it... A real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. How To with John Wilson is, here's how I describe the genre, documentary, memoir, art, comedy. And sometimes, you know, it's not, it's not a 25% across the board. It is, this new show on HBO is just the most interesting show that I've seen in a long, long time. And the titular John Wilson is here with me. Thanks. Thanks for doing this, John. Yeah. Th- uh, thanks for asking me. This is nice. So of all the documentaries in the HBO show, of all the episodes, they all have a titular premise. And those premise, I don't know how you think about it. Is it a launch pad for a deeper contemplation of what the premise could represent? Like, so one is about scaffolding and one is about protecting your furniture, but neither is really about that. Once you go inside it, it becomes something else. So to put a question to this observation, is the purpose of talking about something like scaffolding and furniture to get to the deeper point? Or do you start with the deeper point and then try to work backwards and say, what very mundane life experience does this represent? Each episode kind of, it it, it does really originate uh, with, with something uh, that's bothering me personally or uh, something that I'm observing that I don't understand. Uh, so, so, so it does come from a very real place. Uh, but I, I do like to pick subject matter that, that, that feels niche and kind of small that has a lot of room underneath it for kind of like to plug in different parts of society or parts of my life. So like whatever casts, like, you know, whatever kind of acts as the widest umbrella over all of these different ideas that I want to, that I'm constantly thinking about anyway, you know, like the covering furniture episode, 
that started very small with a chair in my apartment. But, you know, it, it in the middle of the episode, it gets to defensive architecture, you know, and, and the ways that the, the city tries to protect protect itself from its own citizens. And, you know, that, that I, I just didn't really want to do the straight story, you know, because that's what I think a lot of documentaries typically do is it's very, you know, it's a one to one relationship with like the between the title and the and the subject matter, which which can be great sometimes you know like i love frederick weiss frederick weissman is one of my favorite filmmakers of all time and you know he has a movie called high school and it's just about a high school you know and i i, I love that kind of stuff but right, right. i i, I want to legislator and it's about a state legislature his yeah, titles exactly. are pretty easy to figure out what they're about <laughs> i know and and that's the beauty of it you know and and so, so but that uh, but like i'm inspired by you know scaffolding that that's kind of like a that's kind of like a Weissman-ish kind of title that I wanted to put on it, where it's like, you know what you're getting in, you think you know what you're getting into, and it, it really is about scaffolding, but, uh, you know, there's like a kind of a, there's a hidden meaning behind everything, and sometimes multiple meanings, or there's like a hidden joke inside of everything, and the fun of the show and, and the fun of the art is is just trying to think about how many different ways this one th- subject could be interpreted, you know? Uh, because nothing, no answer is really ever that simple. And I, I like to pick subjects that don't have easy answers that, you know, everyone I ask uh, has a complicated relationship with. But do you generally, and maybe it's different answers for different episodes, do you start with the pith, the thing that it really means, and then work backwards? Or do you start with, I'm really getting my chair covered or I'm really thinking about people who put plastic on furniture and now I'll start thinking about what this means. And this leads me to, you know, an amazing interview with a guy about foreskin. So my question is about the process and where your thinking starts on it. The thinking usually is, is pretty basic to begin with, you know, like I really, you know, when I first started making the scaffolding episode, I really did just spend an entire summer underneath scaffolding by myself, you know, just filming every single day, uh, the different kinds and the different ways it was decorated and stuff like that. And I witnessed a lot of things falling, you know, and I kind of wanted to let the story find me in a way, because like the things that I tried to prepare for ended up not making it into the show and all of the kind of coincidental stuff is all the richest material at the end of the day. And that is the, you know, like you kind of have to build the episode around these, these moments that feel real because they are real. And, you know, like that is that, that, that should always be the centerpiece of the episodes. And, you know, it's kind of hard as a producer, you know, I'm sure it scares my producers and I mean, I know it does that it, so much of this relies on just pure coincidence, but uh, my philosophy is just, the, you know, and, and Nathan's as well is just the more you try, just the higher the yield will be of, of, of these kind of unforgettable moments. Um, and you just need a very basic framework to just to, to, to jump from sometimes. So Nathan, who you mentioned, is Nathan Fielder, who does Nathan for you. How are the shows? I mean, you could see his influence, and I've read some interviews with him and your other producers about the experience on that show uh, helping you. But how do the shows, do you think, what kind of DNA do they share, and what are the points of departure? Nathan and I 
like we see eye to eye like so often, but our sh- our shows are very different styles. You know, we're both trying to like kind of do the best we can with kind of nonfiction film. And he's obsessed with realism in the same way that I am, you know, and, and that was something that we, you know, we connected on instantly. Um, Cause I was already a bit, you know, I was a big fan of his show uh, when it was airing and I would always kind of evangelize about it because, you know, it, it was showing a side of TV that you never usually see. Like you see the, the kind of B sides of every take and the extended, you know, the extended cuts of these, these interviews, it's, it's like, it's like, if you add two seconds to every shot in every reality show, it would be like a, a a terrible, awkward mess. And you would see how strange these people truly are, you know, and that's like part of, of what I like, um, when we're working in the edit is just like, how do we cut this in a way that, people aren't used to and actually like may reveal a deep truth that people try to obscure in normal TV, you know, and then that, that's what just bums me out so much watching like normal TV is just it's so over edited and you don't get a real sense of people and, you know, and then we end up like, I don't know, supporting these distorted characters and we don't really know who they are in real life, but they end up having real life kind of creating real life problems for us. But yeah, so, uh, we, yeah, we, we've, we vibed really well with, um, our kind of senses of realism and he stressed and he stressed that, you know, in, in each episode that we have at least one moment that the audience just says, you know, oh my God, I, I can't believe you captured that. And, you know, that being the standard kind of helped to motivate, you know, like what I wanted out of each episode. Is that the, I don't know, was it even a decision, but is that what's informing the speech pattern, which is your actual natural speech pattern that the listeners are hearing right now if they haven't watched the show? This is basically how you talk on the show. And there are lots of ums and sometimes, you know, sentences don't always, aren't always perfectly constructed. Yeah. So yeah, I just lost my train of thought there. Um, But yeah, I, I, uh, this is my real voice and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, take it or leave it. And, uh, it was something, you know, I started narrating my movies just because I was always self-conscious about my recorded voice, you know, which uh-huh. I, I don't think I'm alone in. I think people, you know, feel disgusted sometimes when they hear themselves like played back. Um, their voice sounds like an octave, uh, you know, an, an octave away from what they always thought it sounded like. And, I, um, you know, I, I kind of use the films as a way to become comfortable with the the sound of my voice and, you know, because I was always afraid of, of, of really putting myself out there like that. And in fact, in some of the earlier films, there are moments where you just kind of make a sound or, and I don't know if this is a mistake or not, I would guess it's a purposeful mistake or a mistake that you made the conscious choice to leave in. But there are some parts where, boom, it just ends mid-sentence as if a mistake has been made. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, I, I was just cutting everything myself and, uh, sometimes there were the, there would just be these kind of happy accidents in the edit where I would accidentally put a clip on top of one, uh, you know, another one. And instead of undoing it, I would just, <laughs> I would just preserve the like accidental edit. And, um, you know, I, I think that just makes it feel more relatable in a way, you know, just the kind of having it with, you know, warts and all. 
Right, right. The form is echoing the content. Although I would guess when it comes to HBO, the decree was something like, okay, let's not go that far. Right. It was really funny, like, because the post-production department, you know, they had to go, like, you know, there was a quality control, like, phase right, of the edit. Right, right, and, and they needed to flag, you know, every time that the camera operator was in the shot or, you know, uh, <laughs> when even though it was me and that was, like, the point of the show, like... The, the, like the whole edit was filled with flags that we needed to tell them like, no, that's intentional. You know, you're, you're, you're supposed to see my feet. You're, uh, uh, or, you know, this, this composition is it, like, it's okay if you see myself in the mirror. Right. It's, and I do think with things like reality TV, we at least tell ourselves we're such sophisticated consumers of that, that we know there's artifice, but with, um, you know, with all documentaries, with almost all these forms there, they, they try to sand off the edges and to per and to show, perfect distillations, especially of how people look. So we're really attuned to that. And since I'm a podcast slash radio guy, I notice it more often with voices than maybe the average person. But I do think your show is underlining the artifice, not just in terms of, oh, everyone has to look perfect on TV, which is well known, but think about how perfect sounding um, TV or film or standard documentary demands. Yeah. Um, and, and this is all stuff that I'm kind of actively working against, you know, in my own work. Um, you know, I, I, I am a, a bit of a purist in some ways, you know, ab about like uh, manipulating the image and stuff like that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I really just want to have I, w I want everything to be completely raw. Um, I, I, I and, you know, you have a title at the beginning and that's pretty much it. Um, but, <clears throat> you know, it's like every single documentary in the in the world right now just has the same bizarre recycled like the the jinx in intro you know like it, it it's almost like it's it's a it's like they feel like uh, they have to do it to make it like legally a documentary it has to have yeah. <laughs> like it has to have some moody like over designed like title sequence and it, it just like that that on top of a bunch of, of, of other cliches just like oh yeah me. the trope where the trope where you've interviewed 12 talking heads and they use the same phrase and you cut them all together i've only seen oh that my god times. i've it's, only seen that a hundred like, times i've seen that about a hundred times yeah <laughs> yeah i i just don't know what like like why they think people like like want that or need it you know it's like you do it once or twice and it, it, it just i don't know it, it I, I just wanted to, you know, f the show for me is, is just kind of like a sandbox uh, between a, a bunch, you know, f for a bunch of different documentary styles. Uh, so I don't really sit too long in any one of them. But, you know, I did want to, I don't know if you ever seen that movie, uh, Los Angeles Plays Itself. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, you know, th that was like a, a, I wanted to have the section in the scaffolding episode where I talk about scaffolding in cinema, you know, and that was just like a, a little genre ex experiment in that section just to, to kind of pay homage to that movie. Um, but I, you know, and then I, I just wanted to be able to dip out of it. Um, I, last thing I want to ask you about is your visual vocabulary, your visual style, which is so often you'll have, you'll make a reference and then you'll cut to a sign or that reference playing out in a different pun type way. It's fantastic. In terms of your catalog of images, do you, well, I just want to ask you, do you just shoot image after image and then hope you have one in the vault or do you go or do you write a script and then go out seeking images to match what you're going to talk about um 
it's it's kind of a mix of the two. You know, I, I this is it's a hard thing to reproduce, but I, I, at the end of the day, I'm 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 shooting, writing, and editing simultaneously, and that's the best way to to do it. Um, you know, I'll, sometimes I may have a, a gag that I that we kind of pencil down um, before production that we want to try out and maybe have a scavenger hunt, you know, uh, for and try to find the footage. But a lot of the time, you know, like I'm personally shooting every single day on the streets. And then I have a second unit team that shoots about a quarter of the show um, who, you know, it's like four or five teams every single day in different parts of the city with no real agenda, which I'm sure, which, you know, apologies to them. I'm sure can be kind of like annoying sometimes, but, uh, a lot of the, you know, almost every day they come back with something exceptional and, you know, we work like, and then, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm shooting all day and then I go into the edit and watch the material and we kind of pick, I mean, uh, the editors and I, and the assistant editors, we pick out the most kind of naturally like, interesting or funny and like, you know, just naturally funny shots. And then like you kind of write a joke in the moment to the shot. And then you think about how to pad it with footage around it. And you either have the footage already because we have a crazy archive that's all keyworded or you go out or, or, or I go out myself or a second unit person will go out and shoot until they find that very specific, strange thing. I, I hope you've gotten great reaction on this. I hope that, I don't know, it seems like the kind of show that's not usual that could go one of many directions. And I would just hope that whatever direction it goes, HBO is looking at it like an artistic achievement and enough people find it and get something out of it. Because I have to say, I just I just find it really impressive and so different and so worth my time. So thanks for the show, John. Yeah, and th- th- thank you so much for for connecting with it. I mean, I I, I really didn't I really didn't uh, know how I, this was going to be received or if the world wanted something like this, you know. But it, it's, are you getting it's, signs it's been, they do? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I feel like people are really you know people from all over the place. You know, I I thought it was just going to be people that you know that were in my little niche like documentary world. You know. Uh, I, I really have no idea what people are looking for these days, but yeah, people from all over, it's just been really surprising. How to with John Wilson is the name of the show. It's on HBO and John, it was a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, you too. And now the spiel, Janet Yellen at Treasury Avril Haines at DNI, Alejandro Mayorkas at Homeland Security. These are all exciting. If competence excites you, it does me. All of these people appointed by Joe Biden to head agencies within his upcoming administration would also break either a gender or ethnic barrier too. It's all a huge improvement on where we are, a thrilling improvement even. But I want to talk about another appointment. The Biden transition spokesperson announcing new cabinet picks, including John Kerry for the climate czar position. Now, I have no truck with Mr. Kerry in the particular. He has excellent credentials on climate change and the idea of a head and coordinator of all government responses. It's a good idea, a good signal. I'm sure it will result in better policy than if all the administration's climate actions were uncoordinated. But it's the czar part. Still with the czar. Always with the czar. Long live 
the czar. The idea of czars, some sources will tell you, dates back to Roosevelt. But in my mind and imagination, and also other sources will point to, thus confirming my mind and imagination, the czar designation in American politics dates back to the 70s and 80s, a time when it should be noted, Russia was viewed as an esteemed enemy. Maybe these czars have something to say after all, we must have thought then. So there was an aid czar and an inflation czar and a regulatory czar. And then after the Cold War ended, still, we love the czars. The Bush administration, second one, appointed a faith-based czar. I guess Russian Orthodox was the implied answer to that one. There was a car czar, Steve Ratner under the Obama administration. The car czar didn't have to concern himself with being a car guy, though the Afghan czar had to concern himself with car's eye. And if you're going to have a car czar, it's just a short hop, splash, and jump to this one. The fish is the Asian carp, and Goss has been named Asian carp director, but everyone calls him the carp czar. Yes, and from NPR, the carp czar. That was 2010. America likes to hold itself out as an enlightened free country living among the benefits from the blessings of peace. And yet every problem is met with either a czar or a war on, like the war on poverty or the war on hunger or the war on drugs or the war on terror. It seems that we call in a czar or think we need a czar, not just for any old societal ill and not for the huge ones versus the small ones. I mean, Asian carp is nettlesome, to be sure, but not world-changing. Czars are tapped when it is an ill that we need to suppress. Carp actually demonstrates this well. When there seems to be a phenomenon that we had checked or kept in abeyance that is now exploding. Things like drugs, inflation, government spending, you know, AIDS, crack, Bernie gets, as the poet once said. But there is an extra ridiculousness to the czar being a climate czar. The phrase climate czar, that guy over there is kind of a climate czar, should be described to you as an old guy who won't set the AC below 76 degrees because of electricity bills. And by the way, that alone, that does help in the battle against global warming. And if that's just not setting the AC low or telling you not to, and that, I mean, if that's all that a climate czar did, it would be a huge improvement on the Trump administration's policies on climate. But I think climate czar doesn't hit the ear as intended. To me, it doesn't connote iron-willed enforcer of decrees. Climate czar is closer, as I hear it, to something like soup Nazi. It's not an actual imperialist ruler of Russia, more of a guy who's a little angry and in a fit of pique. Furthermore, can you think of a world leader or the title of a world leader that's actually less worried about climate change than the head of the Russian state, especially the Russian state before 1917? Most of the job of the czar, when not suppressing the peasants, was to worry about wheat yields, was to figure out how to administer vast swaths of uninhabitable tundra and to vie for a warm weather port. Since the time of Peter the Great, the quest for a warm weather port has been the defining characteristic of the Tsar's life. Before Peter the Great, it was pretty much out of the question and the main factor in keeping the Tsar a merely second-rate power, a guy with peasant suppression as the only exercise of his office. If I told Ivan the Terrible about global warming, things are going to get warmer and melt, and all those ports you have in the Arctic Circle will be navigable, I don't think he'd think that was terrible. I think both Catherine and Peter would think it was great. Warm water makes so much of the Northern Passage and Russia navigable. 
warm weather helps shipping from a Russian or extremely cold weather perspective. Warm weather reimagines a country that's 65% permafrost. Give me a climate emir, a climate sheikh, a climate chieftain. But on the issue of climate change, a czar is bizarre. And that's it for today's show. Margaret Kelly is the producer of The Gist. She is trying to control the drunk driving that results from seeing a live band in a saloon out of town. She's the don't go far in your car to hear guitars are. Lori Galaretta produced the show with her this week. She's trying to stamp out cologne associated with Pontiac Firebirds. She's the Dracar Noir czar. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. She's trying to stop the practice of freeing cartoon elephants who thought it was wise to enter Mazda Miatas. She's the crowbar babar out of the sports car czar. The gist. I'm not saying we should prosecute Donald Trump, but when it comes to Ivanka, I'd like to see us subpoena the Tsarina. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.